Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I am Bill Arnold, and we're going to continue our study of God's Word today and how it applies to your life. And my special guest, because he's my special friend, is Dr. Mark Muska. He's been teaching theology here at the University of Northwestern for 36-plus years, give or take a couple of months. Are you doing summer school? Uh, just online. Okay. Nothing live right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, nice to have you here. Yeah, and happy, to be back. Happy, you know, July 1st. Mm-hmm. New month, new kicks month, off today. new beginning. Yeah, that's good. So, if you have questions for Mark, uh, ask the professor. Now's the time. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. I want to start, Mark, with a passage out of John chapter five. Sure. And it starts in verse twenty-eight, where it says, "Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is." good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Mm-hmm. That sounds kind of like it's got a works-related thing attached to it, even though I clearly know it doesn't. Yeah, well, that uh, it, it's an illustration, Bill, of um, the the manifestation of faith in Christ or rejection in Christ is our works. Uh, James gets into this, and people get into all kinds of trouble when uh, James teaches in James 2 that we are not justified by our faith, but by our works. What he's getting at there is, is that when we put our faith in the gospel, there's a regeneration that takes place. We are a whole new person. And because of that, uh, we live differently and we act differently. It's very hard to judge people's thoughts or their motives. And so the the indicator of people's thoughts and motives and beliefs is their works. And I think Jesus is cutting to the quick there with it. Uh, you're going to get the same thing in the book of Revelation, that the, they uh, people are judged according to their deeds, because that that is, what would you say, in a, in a, a court of law, that is the incontrovertible proof of their faith or their unbelief. So uh, it's a great illustration, Bill, that we can't just hop onto one passage in the Scripture mm-hmm. and just run with it and ignore everything else. And so when we study a topic like final judgment and accountability, our, the goal we have is, is to bring together all of the teaching in the Bible that addresses that subject and bring them all together, together to get a well-rounded teaching. But that's what theology is. Theology is theology of Christianity is the teaching of Christianity, what we believe, what we teach. And you do that by looking at all of these passages. So you take this one and you line it up with Paul's statements, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest no one should boast. And so do those two contradict each other? I don't think so, that we can see that we are saved by grace through faith. And that faith manifests itself in our works, in our deeds. So 
that is uh, the uh, I don't know if I'm making sense. In a court of law, they don't judge motives; they judge actions. And I think Jesus is just going with that to say this is the this is the incontrovertible truth here of where someone's uh, faith or unbelief is. It's shown through their works, through mm-hmm. their deeds. Mm-hmm. So. Mark, a question like this comes up oh, every couple of months, and I, I never mind addressing it because I think it's something that people are thinking about often, but David asked me to ask you this. Sure. I'm struggling with understanding the doctrine of predestination and our free will. Mm-hmm. If certain people have been predestined to become believers, then why should we witness to non-believers? Why would Jesus say that he knocks at the door and whoever opens it, he will come in if only certain people have been predestined? If predestination is predestination the same as pre-selection in that God has already selected or chosen who will be saved and not others? Yeah, I mean, David, uh, welcome to the conversation this has been going on for centuries, and one of, that's one of my defaults to say if very brilliant, very godly, very dedicated people have gone round and round with this, we're not going to answer all the questions that surround this idea of, of uh, God's—sometimes uh, it's the doctrine of God's decrees— you ever watch Robin Hood movies when you were a kid and the, the, the uh, sheriff of Nottingham would put a decree and he'd post it in the town. You know, everybody has to pay taxes. A, a decree is a statement of will that when God decrees something, he's saying this is going to happen. And then in his providence, he makes it happen. So God decrees things and he pre-decrees them. He says them ahead of time. He predestines things to happen. And that, because he's the sovereign of the universe, uh, it's going to happen. Who's going to be able to thwart God? A puny little grasshopper, uh, (laughs) a human being on the earth here? That's not going to happen. And yet, at the same time, again, this is where we have to bring in all the teaching of Scripture, that it's blatant as the nose on your face that... Uh, virtually every command in the scripture implies that we have the freedom to choose whether we're going to obey it or not. And that is a real freedom. It is not a coerced freedom. Oh, well, you know, I'd like to choose Jesus, but God didn't destine me to it, so I guess I can't. You know, that's foolishness. So that in our existence and as we live our lives and we are faced with choices, moral choices, to do the right thing or the wrong thing, or the choice, the million-dollar choice, whether we're going to put our faith in the gospel or not and trust Christ to forgive our sins through his death on the cross, we've got the choice to make that. And in the reality of the lives we live, it's a free choice. Uh, haven't we kicked this round before where we said, mm-hmm. if there's any hint of coercion in that, you back off yeah. if you're talking to somebody about Jesus. If there's any sense that they're being forced or they're doing this for ulterior motives, oh, hit the brake pedal. We know we got to stop here. This has to be something you want to do. So it doesn't make sense. I know it's irrational, David, but when it comes, I like to use the, the, the conversion illustration. When someone puts their faith in the gospel, why did they do it? There's two answers to that question, and they're perfectly in harmony with one another. Why did they put their faith in the gospel? Number one, because they wanted to, okay? They chose to, and it was free. No one's twisting their arm. No one's holding the gun to their wife's head, making them do it. It's something they're doing of their own free will. So that's answer number one. Why did they do it? Answer number two is 
because God predestined it before Adam and Eve even were running around in the garden. And those two don't look like they're compatible, compatible, but they are somehow. I don't know. Nobody's ever been able to answer that sufficiently. What people usually end up doing is overemphasizing one of those at the expense of the other so that they so emphasize God's uh, predestining that it doesn't sound like we have much of a choice. We're reading a script that's been written for us, and like actors in a play, we got to say our lines. Uh-uh. That's not the picture you get from the Scripture. But then on the other end of it, people so emphasize human freedom that they uh, say that you know uh, God doesn't uh, predestine anything, that he, uh, he may know what's going to happen, but he really doesn't do anything to decide who's, uh, who, who's going to do what. And that just doesn't mesh with the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. You just can't line that up that way. And so somewhere in the middle of there, Bill, is the answer to that. Uh, David, can I reassure you a little bit? Don't be like a dog chasing its tail and just going round and round and round and getting more and more frustrated and trying to answer these questions, because no matter what answer you come up with, you're still going to have other questions you can't answer very well. And you just have to be able to live with that. This is in the it, in the counsels of God, so far over our heads, just like the stars, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions. And can you find peace with that? Or do you have to have all your questions answered? If you do, you're going to have a problem because you won't be able to answer them all satisfactorily. You just, you just won't. This whole thing about witnessing, too, that's a fairly uh, common question. Why should we witness to people if God's predestined them to be saved? Uh, I like the answer uh, that uh, many theologians have given where they will say that uh, if God predestines someone to be saved, he also predestines the way they're going to be saved. And that's through Christians proclaiming the gospel and them hearing it and putting their faith in it. That's Romans 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call upon him whom they have not heard? How will they hear unless somebody preaches? How will they preach unless somebody's sent? So that's the means is also orchestrated, put into place by God. And that's where we are obedient to that as Christians. We are heralds. We proclaim the good news and people hear it. They put their faith in the gospel and they're saved. You're not saved any other way. It's by grace through faith, and it always has been. But you have to hear that message in order Mm -hmm. to be saved. So, So Mark, let's say your twin brother comes in. You don't have a twin brother, but let's say you did have one. Yes. And he also taught theology for 36 years at university level. And you two are having a discussion, and you, you have a different interpretation of Scripture. Sure. Which one should I believe? Me. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I don't really, you know, Bill, in, in a very real sense, I know this sounds uh, maybe a little bit cavalier, but I really don't care because you have to read these passages. And when it comes to passages that are difficult to interpret and godly, wonderful people differ in their interpretation, we still hold to the idea that there's only one correct interpretation. So somebody's wrong here. They both can't be right. But we back off a little bit and say, okay, is this, is the earth going to stop turning if we don't get this answered? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And so it, you have to look at the importance of it. And you know what, Bill, especially with this predestination question, I'd love to start with what we can agree on when it comes to predestination. And there's a bunch of things that we can agree on. Number one is that God will accomplish what he chooses to accomplish. 
And I don't know a Bible-believing Christian that's going to dispute that. Amen. So God is going to accomplish his purposes. I love that. He also, it makes it blatantly clear, the only way we will be saved is by hearing the gospel, putting our trust in it, and depending on it being true and being born again. Whether God's predestination is part of all that thing or not, we'll argue till the cows come home. But everybody agrees that that's the way people are saved, is by putting their faith in the gospel. And you have the opportunity to do that, but you also have the responsibility to do that. Nobody's going to be able to stand before God someday and say, Oh, well, you know, I wanted to believe the gospel, but I wasn't predestined, and that's just, you know, that stinks and all that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Doesn't work. You want to believe it. Here it is. Put your faith in the gospel. Mm -hmm. Become a follower of Christ. There's nothing that should be stopping you about God's predestination or foreordination or election or any of that kind of thing. You want to put your faith in the gospel. Do it. I love that message. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. This is Ask the Professor. Let me know what questions you would like him to answer. 877-933-2400. Again, 877-933-2484. You can also email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back. with Dr. Mark Muska. Let me know what questions are. Got some good ones coming in, and I have time for all of them so far. So 877-933-2484. You can remain anonymous, or you can say, hey, you can mention my name. That'd be kind of cool. The listener said, hey, Bill, we tell people about Jesus because he told us to. Yep. I love that. All right. Not real complicated. No. Let's let's talk about, because this just came up with another listener. Okay. And that, uh, Mark has to do with eternal security. Sure. Uh, is it impossible to know we're saved? Is it? Did you say impossible yes. or possible? Is it impossible to know? It is possible. Good. Say more. That's what faith is. We depend on it being true. I'm really not using the word faith anymore, Bill. It's so overused. People talk about, well, my faith is this or that, and it's such a euphemism. I like using the words depend and rely. You are depending on Jesus that when he says that you are saved, you are forgiven because I took your sin debt and I paid it. And when you depend on that, kabang, kaboom, you are a follower of Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. And the scriptures wants us to have confidence that we are saved, that 
there's still components that come to living as a Christian, and we sometimes have our ups and downs with that, and people will take step forward and then step back sometimes. But this thing about being a follower of Christ, it should be something that you you can scratch off the worry list. Nice. Know? I love that. You got a worry list of 87 things you worry about. Well, let's get number 27 <laughs> off of that, you know, about eternal security. Mm-hmm. There's a great promise in 1 John 5. I talk about it with a brand new Christian because I want them to take a sigh of relief to say that they don't have some sword of Damocles swinging over their head, that they've got to do certain stuff. Otherwise, this whole thing's off with Jesus. John ends his book. I love John's writing because he tells us why he's writing. He's one of the only Bible writers who tells us his purpose. And he says in 1 John 5, 11, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I say to that new Christian, verse 13, do you believe in the name of the Son of God? Did you just put your faith in the gospel? Yeah. So he's writing this to you. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Look at the verbs there. He doesn't say that you think that you might have it or that you hope that you will have it. He says you can know that you have eternal life. Now, this isn't the kind of knowing of certainty, you know, if the whole philosophical thing, but you know it because you've got a settled faith and you're believing it and you're trusting it to be true, that you have eternal life. And that, by its very dish, definition, is it, it's going to last a long time, you mm-hmm. know, eternal life. It's not something short. It's yeah. something really long. And so <laughs> uh, when, with people who struggle with this, I've told this story before, but, you know, I think it's so powerful. It goes back to when I was a first to Christian. I had a really good buddy in school that just wrestled with this thing about whether he was saved or not. He had been raised in a Christian home, and he didn't know if he threw the twig in the fire right or he said the <laughs> prayer or whatever it was, you know, and he was driving everybody crazy. And so I finally said to him, okay, pal, right now today, and it was something like, I don't even know, it was like, let's just say July 1st of 1974, mm-hmm. okay? I said, what's the day today? July 1st, 1974. Okay, pal, do you trust that Jesus' death for you pays your sin debt so you're forgiven, you have eternal life and peace with God? And he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I said, okay, take out your Bible and write it down, and we're going to put it in there. I, and put his name, I am depending on Jesus to forgive my sins, give me eternal life and peace with God, signed, and he put his name down there and dated it. I said, okay, pal, now every time you start with this whole thing about whether you don't know you're saved or not, I want you to get out your Bible and look at that because you got it. Who cares when it started, whether you were six or nine or 13? Are you believing it? Are you depending on it today? That's the basis of your assurance of salvation. The person you got to be worried about is the person who's wandering. Oh, yeah, I, uh, you know, Jesus was okay for a while, but, I, you know, I think Buddha's the way now or something like that. Okay, you've got a real problem then. That's somebody that you have to deal with. But the person that's worried about it, the very fact they're worrying about it is evidence that they are saved. If they weren't saved, they wouldn't care. <laughs> so, so I love that. <laughs> but you have to be nice to people. You just can't yeah. drop that brick on their head. No, that's true. So. Anyway, I, I hope that helps, though, seriously. I think it does. It's one of those things, you know, if you want to look at that from demonic and diabolical point of view, the devil has two strategies. He loves to try to make people doubt things that are true 
and he loves to try to persuade people to believe things that are false. And both ways it goes around, mm-hmm. and we just struggle with this stuff. So, anyway. all, right. all right, Mark, here's an interesting question. I'm going to read two passages out of Genesis. This is in Genesis Whoa. 1, Whoa. Uh, verse 26, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, mm-hmm. and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over mm-hmm. all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Mm-hmm. 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's shoot down to chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and mm-hmm. man became a living living being. Mm-hmm. When was man created? In chapter 1 or in chapter 2? Oh, yeah, that, that's a really good question. The, to, uh, to address this, Bill, I don't think I have the, the answer, but one of the most plausible ways to understand this, you have to look at the Bible as a literary work, all right? It's a piece of literature. It's far greater than Shakespeare, but it's like Shakespeare in the sense that when you read it and interpret it, you have to use literary principles to do that. So you look at words and their meanings. You look at grammar and the relationship of those words to one another. You look at morphology. You look at figures of speech, all these things that you would do if you were in an English literature class. That's the challenge for us when we read the Bible. And so Genesis has literary structure to it. And because of that, we're faced with this question, and it's not just the creation of humans, but there's two creation accounts. In Genesis 1, this is the one everybody's uh, familiar with, where it says, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and and goes through the days of creation. But then uh, starting uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. And he starts again, and he's telling the creation story, but this time he zooms in on uh, the the forming of Adam. And so what we have here is a literary device of repetition where the the creation account is given in two different, from two different angles. The first one is the cosmological one, the whole shebang. The second one is much more dialed in to humanity and the garden and the things that happen there. So there's even literary cues in the book of Genesis that help us to understand this. Do you see there in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth? That word account, that's a tough one to translate. And account probably isn't the best. If you look in chapter 5, verse 1, you're going to see that the translation, my translation says, in five one, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That word generations is the same word as the account word in Genesis two four. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew word there, I'm going to show off a little bit here, but the Hebrew word there is the word toledot. And it's very hard to translate this accurately. Uh, I like the way my Hebrew professor did this in seminary where he described it as toledot means this is the story of or this is what happened to. And so in Genesis 2-4, it's saying, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. This Mm. is what happened to the heavens and the earth. This is the generations of Adam. This is what happened to Adam. So can I get back to that? Of course. Yeah, we're back with Uh more with Dr. Mark Muska. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. That's a text. Hope you can text or if you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. 
with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor. Some great questions coming in. Thank you for your questions. And we've got some uh, cleanup in aisle five. Aren't we going to talk about those Genesis passages a little bit more? Yeah. So uh, the point I was making there, Bill, is that Genesis, the structure of it, the literary structures, it's purposeful that this uh, creation account is repeated twice. So that the general one is given in chapter one, and then this total word I talked about, this is what be happened to, or this is the story of, that helps you understand then chapters two, three, and four, because we get the, the creation account in chapter one, and then in chapter two, four, it says, this is the story of the heavens and the earth, or this is what happened to the heavens and the earth when they were created. And what happened? They were created beautiful. He restates that. But then sin entered into it and devastated it. Go now to chapter 5, verse 1, and you're going to see there's a third creation story. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam, or this is the story of Adam. Look how he starts it. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day that they were created. That sounds like that 126 and 27 again, doesn't it? Sure it sure does, yeah. So there's no... There's no contradiction there at all. This is a literary device to retell the story, but from a different angle for a different purpose. In this case, in chapter 5, we're going to hear what happened to fam, uh, Adam and his family in the next several chapters. Here's a question in Mark. Let's see. It's John, John chapter 4. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And then John says in verse 2, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Why did John make a point of pointing out that it wasn't Jesus who baptized? Because I would imagine there was a lot of people asking Jesus to baptize them. Uh, that's a, something we can speculate about. We don't have any evidence of that, that they were asking for that. Uh, but it seems as though uh, things are getting to the point where Jesus is busy enough now, it's okay. going to be hardy, hard for him to deal with every person. And All so right. he's delegating uh, some of this to the apostles. Uh, the, the, the water baptism thing is a real interesting quiz question through the New Testament, because then you get Paul saying in 1 Corinthians that, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you. And in fact, I can't even remember how many I baptized and all this kind of thing. And so was Paul not that interested in water baptism? You know, you get little hints like right. that to say, hmm, just how, what what role does water baptism play in the Christian life, in the Christian story? So it's uh, it's an intriguing little, uh, little rabbit to chase through the scriptures. <laughs> it is. All right, here's another question. Oh, RJ sure. wants to know, so how does the fact that Jesus died for our forgiveness and that all our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, so what is the judgment then? Yeah. How does that affect the punishment at judgment? Yeah, it, uh, it, it doesn't affect it at all. It, the judgment confirms it. So that the, the decision has already been made. You know what's going to happen. And now, final judgment, it's like the official action is taken, and people are judged. And uh, if they have died apart from Christ, they're banished uh, to live forever apart from Christ. It's very similar to court cases. We've had this uh, awful thing going on in the Twin Cities area with George Floyd and then the 
a trial of the policeman who was convicted of murdering him. And the jury brought that conviction in, uh, what was it, a, a month and a half, two months ago? But it was just this last week where he was sentenced. And so that made it official. He was sentenced, and now his prison sentence has been has been uh, a stamp of, a, of validation mm-hmm. on it. So everybody knew he was going to prison, and it was probably going to be a long time, and this just made it official. So that's a pretty decent analogy of this. Final judgment makes it official. Thank you for that. Uh, in Romans, let's see, this is chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we think of all the evil in the world, how practically do we do this verse, walk this verse out? Oh, there's, you know, I would suggest that overcoming evil with good, uh, Paul's going to say a ton about that in Romans itself. So that in the body of Christ, we love and nurture one another. And even with enemies, he says things like, uh, so far as is possible with you, be at peace with all men. Mm -hmm. And do not take vengeance against others. But God is the one who takes vengeance. And so those are practical outgrowths of this idea of overcoming evil with good. That uh, that is a, a... it's an angle on the whole living of the Christian life we don't talk about very much, that uh, we have evil all around us. And is that knocking us back on our heels? And are we clucking like hens, uh, complaining about all the evil around us? Or are we taking steps forward to overcome evil with good so that people do evil things? Well, then we come with good and help those who have been uh, uh, exploited by that evil so that we take care of them, we nurture them, uh, we uh, uh, we take steps to move forward as Christians and not be stepping backward. And so uh, th- that I like that idea a lot, that we don't let the evil and the fears of the world knock us backward. We move forward by faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. I like that. Thank you, Mark. Another question that is, um, I was reading in my Bible yesterday, 2 Samuel chapter 8. I noticed at the very close of the chapter, it is mentioned that some of David's sons served as priests. Would Mark please help me understand how this is so, since David is a descendant of the tribe of Judah? Yeah, that's interesting. I am getting over there right now. Let's see here. Give me a second. People will be patient, I'm sure. I know it. I'm yeah. getting over here. So, justice, yeah, it's in verse 15 of chapter 8, it says, David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. I don't see anything, though, about David's sons being priests. It goes on to talk about Joab... And Zadok, hmm, yeah, the, oh, I bet you it's verse 18 here. It says, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers, and that word there is priests, that uh, I haven't studied this very closely, Bill. What I would guess is that this is not 
official priesthood like the Levitical priests would be that would be ministering in the tabernacle and in the temple, but they acted as mediators. Uh, a, a lot of people don't realize this. The word priest means go-between or mediator. So a priest is one that goes, an official priest goes between God and the regular people. And it may be, uh, it's just my my first uh, uh, look at this in a while, it may be that this is uh, priests in the sense that they are mediators on behalf of the people and David. Because they're David's sons, they have access to their father, and then the people can use them as a go-between. That's, uh, that's just my guess. All right. In Colossians 2.8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So Paul's speaking to the church yep. in Colossae, yep. and is he speaking to believers, oh, you saying mm-hmm. don't wander off and don't uh, fall for something that's going to lead you away? Would that be representing uh, someone that's deserting the faith or someone that's backsliding? Or what is he talking about there? Well, I like the last part of the verse there where he talks about the elementary principles of the world versus the teachings that are according to Christ. And so are you depending on these worldly traditions of men and principles of the world, or are you holding on to the teachings of Christ that you have received from Paul? And that includes this idea of uh, philosophy and empty deception I have to say, Bill, that historically many in the church have poo-pooed the idea of studying philosophy as a, a scholarly discipline because of this verse. I think that's an overreaction. It's the idea, though, where philosophy becomes the final, uh, what, the final arbiter of truth that if you can't prove something philosophically using logic or whatever philosophical means, then uh, there's no reason to believe it. That's more of what Paul is getting at. You got to remember that the Greeks during this first century time uh, were well established in their philosophical schools, and uh, this even infiltrated the church early on in the 100s, 200s, and 300s. And so this was a caution that Paul was giving to stick to the teachings of Christ. You don't have to throw your philosophy scrolls away or anything like that, but make sure you're being informed by the teachings of Christ. I like that. All right, in 1 John chapter 5, Mark, it says in verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. Yep. And his commands are not burdensome. Yep. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Mm-hmm. When you hear that in verse 3, that his commands are not burdensome, mm-hmm. how do most believers understand that? <laughs> I think a lot of us don't believe it sometimes. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> because it seems so, so hard to resist temptation. It, it, yeah. And especially those areas of chronic temptation where we have our weaknesses. 
uh, you know, you've got a wonderful hand of ministry in with people who struggle with addictive mm-hmm. kinds of things. And boy, you know, the stories you hear there, it breaks your heart. They love Jesus. They want to follow him, but they have a significant issue there that they have to fight tooth and nail every day. And so that doesn't seem real burden, <laughs> burden free. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it's, it's a terrible thing. Uh, I go back to what Jesus said, though. Remember that he said that uh, his yoke is light uh, when he taught uh, uh, the, his disciples. So uh, I guess I like the idea that, yes, we obey his commands, that his commands are not burdensome because Jesus has our heart and our devotion. And so even if we struggle with some of these things to obey and to stay on the right path, uh, the important thing there is our devotion to Christ and our love for him. And that's going to be a clash at times because we're all immature and we're trying to, trying to live in a way that pleases him. It's going to be a, it's going to be a struggle. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes sense, but it just, it does make sense. It's uh, it's uh, I, I totally reject this idea that once you put, become a follower of Christ, it's, a walk through the lily pads with the choir singing and, you know, the sun shining all the time. It, it's a battle. Yeah. And it can be, especially early on, but it it can, can and per- persist throughout life that we struggle and we depend on Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to, to obey and to resist sin. It's not, it's not something that's a walk in the park. Yeah. Get your questions in. We still have time for a couple more questions. Let me know. Ask the professor. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. The text line is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Dr. Mark Musk is my guest in studio. He is a professor here at the University of Northwestern. Been here for several decades. A long time. I was getting that. I have students that come up to me now and say, Oh, Professor Mathka, my mom was in your class back in 1997. How annoying is that? Uh, it's, a, it's a blessing. Oh, good. I usually tell them, shut up first. You know? <laughs> but then think, yeah. think of the generations, though. You know, yeah. these people graduate and they marry and have children and they're faithful and these kids come. Uh, I was just talking to one of the staff here at KTIS coming in here today. His daughter <laughs> just, he was in my class. Classes back in the wow. 90s. His daughter just got married this last weekend. He had it all over Facebook. It was so sweet to see that because she was in my class too and just a peach of a girl. So that was, it was really fun. So it's very fun. Nothing wrong with that at all. All right. We are back in John. A lot of questions coming from the book of John today. And we're starting in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light of life. Is that a positional standing? Or does that mean that you can walk back in darkness because you're sinning? Oh, it's it's the idea that you walk in the light, meaning 
you see the truth and you follow it. You can follow Jesus because you see him. You see him because you're in the light and you're following him. And so it's a progression that takes place uh, with that. And uh, this light thing comes up a lot. Uh, We were just talking during the break there. uh, Jesus comes back to it in John chapter 12 when his public ministry is over. These are his last words. He says in John 12, 35, Jesus said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And then John says, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. And that was it for his public ministry. So it's the idea that you become a follower of Christ, you walk in the light, and it enables you to continue to follow him. Does it mean you're going to be sinless perfectionism? Of course not, but you don't go back to the darkness. Uh, Bill, think about this. For the person like me that put his faith in the gospel at 19 years old, I walked in the darkness for the first 19 years of my life, and I have no doubt about that. And even though I've had terrible wrestling matches with temptation and sin throughout my life since then, I have never walked in the darkness like that was that first 19 years. I think that's the sense of it there. Uh, that's a great answer. So I like that. I like, I like talking about light because when I think of people who are, um, when John talks about people who don't believe are, are condemned, I think, well, you're, if you're condemned, you've got one destination. Yep. And so you are dead in your sin and you're condemned so you're more than just walking in darkness. You are darkness. Well, you you are becoming darkness. I think we have to always put that caveat down there. You are condemned, but using Paul's words, you can pass from death to life and do that by responding to the gospel and depending on it being true. And that's where dead people become alive people in Christ. All right. We still have time for... a. Uh question or two. If you've got one to shoot over to us, let me know what it is. You can send it to the text line 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. I'm just trying to read through some of these texts coming in, and let's see here. What, uh, What are the big plans, Mark, for the holiday? We, my wife and I, are going to recover. This is me trying to kill time. No, we were going to recover. Uh, We've had a fantastic last couple of weeks. I think you knew that two weeks ago we went down uh, to Sioux Falls to my son's house. Uh, They celebrated their 10th anniversary, he and his wife, and so they left us with their three boys, (laughs) five, three, and one, for six days. And that was bad enough, Bill, but they also got a golden doodle puppy named Susie and after two days I dubbed her the terrorist (laughs) because she was this puppy with way more energy than brains and jumping all over she incited those three boys it was just battle royal the whole time it was so much fun but we were so pooped when we got done with that week and then last weekend we had an exciting adventure where we went with uh, uh, six other people my wife and I uh, to an Indian reservation over in South Dakota and we were working on a house of prayer that is being 
built out there, and it's really exciting to see that thing develop and the potential there for the gospel reaching into. I mean, you talk about uh, darkness. There's many dark places in this world, and uh, some of those are in a place like that. So, uh, But we worked like crazy, and we got back on Sunday. And uh, so the 4th of July, I can see myself right now sitting in a comfortable chair in the shade outside with a nice uh, glass of um, my favorite soda and talking with my wife and uh, devolving a little bit for Mm -hmm. a few days. It just sounds great. Jesus used what was common knowledge when he would talk to people. And I found that when you read his teachings, he is largely talking to a lot of people who would not have been very educated. Fair? Yes and no. I okay. mean, they they wouldn't know reading, writing, arithmetic of kind of stuff, but they knew the Torah. If they were the boys, at least, they were schooled in that from the synagogues. You know, if they were faithful Jews, they knew the scriptures. And they had memorized a lot of it, A lot they? of it. They had to. They didn't have copies of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So the only time they were exposed to the scriptures was in the synagogue when they would have... Uh, their uh, meetings in the synagogue and the and the scriptures would be read. So uh, that uh, so it's kind of yeah, kind of no mm-hmm. as far as illiteracy is concerned. Mm-hmm. But in Ephesians five one, where it says, "Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children." Mm-hmm. How do I apply that to my life? Oh, I mean, you can fill in the blank yeah. with almost any teaching. Uh, I like to uh, look at Paul's life and say. Look at the way he lived, read his ministry in Acts, look at the things he said to the churches. I mean, I like verse 2, just for a starter there. He says, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So, there's a lot of this discipling of following and learning from someone who is uh, older, uh, an older Christian. And uh, he, I think that's a Blakin statement there, to be imitators of God, live out the very, the very nature of God in the way that you live your life. Mm-hmm. Mark, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Mm -hmm. When you come to faith in Christ, does that armor become uh, part of who you are in Christ, part of your identity? Yeah, we have have access to it at least. Is that something that we, when it says put it on, is that something we do or is it the Holy Spirit put it on us, put it on for us? I, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's either or. Okay. It is the work of God within us to give us these traits, because if you look at what he talks about here, he says, verse 13, take up the full armor of God. He says, stand firm, girding your loins with truth. So part of this is putting on the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, so living rightly, committing yourself to doing the right thing, if you have the power to do it, and then shod your feet with preparation of the gospel of peace. So be ready to be a herald of the gospel. So you can just unpack each part of that to say it's right there at our disposal as Christians, but we choose to live this way. Mm -hmm. It's not just going to happen automatically because we're Christians. Otherwise, he wouldn't have commanded it. How do we understand Hebrews 4.16 that says, let us then uh, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Doesn't grace come pouring out of heaven towards us, or do we have to approach the throne of grace? Yes. Yes to both? Yes. Okay. God is gracious to us, and we don't even know it sometimes. But then we come before God. I think that's a great description of petition prayer where we come to God, have mercy on us, God, pour out your grace on this situation. My daughter is totally turned away from Jesus, and I'm petitioning you to extend your grace to her, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. That's you're, you're approaching the throne of grace. Yeah. I think we talked about that once before. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. image. If we it is. escort that person, that beloved person, into the throne room of heaven and say, Lord, here she is. She's lost her faith. Yep. She's yours now. Mark, always good. I love our time together. Thank you so much for... Man, we've been warming through these things. I've been been paging back and forth. Yeah, you've been busy today. My pages of my Bible are smoking here. Yeah, I know. But now you can go home and rest and have that long holiday weekend. You can take a bike ride? I already did. Today you already did? Yeah. How far did you go? Uh, 22.1. Nice. Feet or miles? No. It was miles. It was my wife and me. Beautiful. <laughs> Gateway trail for you Twin Cities people. Wow. Uh, awesome. Beautiful day for it. Yeah. We well, had a great time. Thank you so much. Always glad to have you here. And uh, mm-hmm. thanks again to the guys for coming in for Guide Talk and for Dr. Mark Muska as my guest for the hour. If you missed any of this hour, it's always fun to go back and hear the uh, answers again with your Bible open, especially if you're driving and you think, yeah. I need to hear this again. I want my Bible open, my pen in hand. Mark, you always say the difference between reading and studying Bible is a pencil. It's a pencil. That's yeah, right. You keep it simple. But don't be doing your mobile device while you're driving. Right. Of course. Mobile doesn't want to be responsible. No, I don't. All accident. right. That wraps up our show. I hope you have a wonderful night. Thanks for spending time with me. And if you're just listening to the podcast because maybe your day is almost over and you're just thinking about a good night's sleep, I pray you have one and we'll see you tomorrow. God bless everybody. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.